Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Kenneth Finkel, author of Insight Philadelphia. Kenneth Finkel, author of Insight Philadelphia. If someone buys this book, what do they get? They get a lot of stories, uh, and they get a lot of history, and uh, and I hope they get a lot of insights. That's why I put that for the in front of the title. Um, Philadelphia is full of stories. Uh, in fact more than we even can begin to get our arms around. And, and so if you had asked someone, what's the Philadelphia story in 1975, they would focus on the bi coming bicentennial. If you ask them, you know, in, in, in uh, uh, 1850, what's the Philadelphia story, they would give you a whole different range of, of responses. And so uh, I, I, I decided when I was engaged to write a weekly or two or three or four times a month, depending on what I could get to, blog for um, uh, the city archives. Um, and that's at uh, phillyhistory.org. Um, and I've been doing that for over seven years now. I uh, thought, okay, this is a chance for me to actually play out um, what took place in a meeting about 15 or 20 years ago, where the Visit Philadelphia people, the tourism folks, called a bunch of historians into a room and said, uh, tell us the new narrative. And everyone looked at it, everyone else and, and thought, oh, they don't get it. Uh, there is no new narrative. There, and we, we turned to, to Morris Vogel, who, who was then a professor at Temple. He later went on to run the Tenement Museum in, in New York City. Uh, he's recently retired from there, and everyone turned to Morris because he was like the, the uh, father figure in the room, and and he looked at the tourism people and he said, he said we're not going to have this in 20 minutes or an hour, in in fact we're not going to have a new narrative, maybe we we may have it in 20 years, and the tourism people looked at their watches and and began to think about their next meeting. <laughs> um, the reason is, he said, and I, I've always agreed, there are meta-narratives. There are smaller chunks of what might be part of a new narrative, but they're out there, they're floating, they're, and, you know, what are they? Those many stories, they're about uh, the first general strike in, in uh, American labor history. Why didn't we hear about that before? Um, in 1835, the coal heavers along the school kill, uh, who were forced to work uh, because it was the practice um, from dawn till dusk, which is fine in the winter, but in the summer, that's uh, from, what, about 5.36 in the morning, 5 in the morning, till about 8 at night or later. Uh, they wanted to work a 12-hour day. They thought that was reasonable, and they struck, and they got what, uh, and other trades joined in, and the newspapers joined in and even employers, not all of them, but many of them, they won. And it's like, that's a great story. And so the, 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 the motto, 
which was scrawled on fences and walls and chalk and, 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 and used in the parades that they had, the demonstrations, from 6 to 6. That was their goal, to work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was considered a good thing. So a story like that, you know, I didn't grow up hearing, and I, I like that there are dozens and dozens, and I know they're there, and it requires someone to scratch the surface doing the research and tell the story, not in, well, partly because it's a, it starts out as a blog post, in seven, eight hundred words. So the phillyhistory.org tapped you to do this as an ongoing Yeah, uh, I uh, got to say, I've always liked writing that in that style. Uh, back uh, when I was, I started my career at the Library Company of Philadelphia, founded by Benjamin Franklin. But when I was there, which was somewhat later, um, I was asked, um, I was curator of prints and photographs. And I thought, history needs to connect with the present day. And so when, for instance, there was a debate in the 1986 to uh, build a new tower or not, a new uh, Liberty Place, to break the, the skyline limit, uh, the, the gentleman's agreement, so-called, um, William Penn was the tallest point on the skyline. Well, uh, I thought this is a good opportunity to talk about the history of the skyline and why that building was the tallest, and in fact, was there really a gentleman's agreement? Really, there wasn't. It, 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 Ed Bacon used it, uh, uh, the idea of it, and that was very effective for him at the time. But so it was never a law? No, never a law. Uh, but gentlemen's agreements are never laws anyway. So they're, they're winks, and usually they're the opportunity for discrimination against any other group, um, whether they're minorities or foreigners or immigrants or you know, uh, they had been used, that had been used that way. There was a movie, The Gentleman's Agreement, uh, in the 40s uh, that made the term popular, a novel, and, and a, a movie, Gregory Peck, starred in it. You learn all kinds of little <laughs> things along the way. Um, and, and so I uh, wrote an op-ed piece in The Inquirer, and uh, then I liked that, they liked it, and so I wrote uh, another 25 over the next decade um, and uh, that was before the internet. When the internet came along, I happened to be uh, at WHYY working in uh, developing cultural programming, and uh, the head of the web services there said, why don't you start a blog? He must have known I had a lot to say. Um, and uh, so I did, and at that time it was, um, it was their first blog called The Sixth Square. It no longer exists. And uh, uh, that was the time when Thomas Aiken's painting, uh, The Gross Clinic, was being sold. And there was a lot of public interest in it. So I thought, OK, let's make a countdown to see if the city, in fact, can raise the $68 million, which they did, to keep the painting. And so every day, um, um, I found something to say about Thomas Aiken's um, for 45 days. And uh, that got me started, and I like that journalistic approach, um, but it's always steeped in history. So when um, the opportunity came that the Azavia, the company that manages the website, phillyhistory.org, for the city, um, when they, they said, we, we have a blog component with these images, over 130,000 images now are up. Uh, they add more all the time. 
but they're usually without context. So how about you do some research and tell us the context? And that's what I've been doing ever since. How often do you have to come up with a new story? Uh, well, I uh, have, I'm supposed to do somewhere about 36 a year, and so that's about three a month. Uh, some weeks, some months I'll do four, some months I'll do two. Um, I, I'm sort of addicted to it at you this ever, point. You ever draw a blank on coming up with a new topic that you haven't done over and over and over? I let the pictures lead me in. And because I used to be a curator of prints and photographs at the library company, I have always had this relationship with images where I'll stare at them and I'll say, okay, okay, tell me your story. And they don't. Uh, but one of the advantages I have with working with these images is you could go online and see them, but there are only so many pixels wide. I ask for the image and I get a fat TIFF file so I could zoom in and read the graffiti on the brick walls. I could read the street signs, look at all the expressions on faces. For me, when a file arrives um, and I ask for things I'm thinking about working on before I'm certain, I get it to talk to me. Uh, I get these images to reveal a little bit of their stories and then I have to do the rest, which I'm happy to do. Well, I went to the website, phillyhistory.org, and um, came across one of your recent ones that says, the hoagie is venerable, but not as historic as we've been led to believe, and mm -hmm. that uh, it was not from Hog Island. Right. Uh, the hoagie is, um, uh, well, the state, you know, Wawa claimed the hoagie uh, a number of decades ago. It became the official sandwich of the city, of the state, if not the state. It's really an interesting thing how the word hoagie didn't, uh, did get accepted here, but not in other, in many other parts of the country. It's sub or submarine. There are many other names for hero. this type of sandwich. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and uh, I, I, I thought about it and I thought, I have the license to speculate a little bit. And, um, and I thought, you know, wait a minute. Uh, the people at Hog Island, who ate these sandwiches, call them whatever you want, they, what, we don't know exactly what they call them, they weren't likely to call them submarines, I thought. Why? Because submarines, German submarines, were torpedoing the ships they were building. So why would you venerate, you know, a, uh, an enemy type of, of uh, uh, weapon of war? Um, you know, call them something else and, and hoagie or hoggy and the spelling, it was interesting now that we have the opportunity to look on the web and see how the spelling changed. Uh, they were hoggies um, first, but this really didn't, the change didn't occur until the 1940s. It wasn't a World War I thing at all. They, sure, they had big sandwiches in World War I, no question about it. What they called them I don't have any original smoking gun documentation about, so I played with that one a little bit, and uh, and I think it's fair to do. After writing 243 of these essays, I'm willing to take a chance every now and then. I get the feeling I could open this book to any page and just have you start to talk about it, like you... Uh you write about, here, we'll take one at random. A century ago, Philadelphia's itinerant icon of patriotism, the Liberty Bell, sprouted a 17-inch hairline crack extending clear across the bell's crown. 
So yeah. the crack doesn't go back to... That, no, uh, it's, uh, the, the thing is full of cracks. And they learned about that when they x-rayed it, which they couldn't always do. It traveled around the country, which is part of the reason it has all these cracks. Uh, and there's, there's just other things that you, you learn when you start digging, like there's a little bit of arsenic in the bell. I mean, the, 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 uh, if we don't have enough irony in the crack, um, there's also poison in it. It's like, you know, this stuff is, uh, is pretty remarkable how facts and narratives sometimes connect and sometimes go apart. Um, yeah, the Liberty Bell is, is uh, and it was given that name um, by the abolitionists in the 1830s and 40s. Um, they played on the irony of the fact that it's cracked, that it's not perfect. Liberty is not perfect. So they didn't assign Liberty Bell name to it back in 1776? No, they, it was just a bell. <laughs> in fact, it didn't even ring when they signed the Declaration of Independence. It was in the bell tower, but the bell tower at that point was rickety. And uh, they were kind of afraid the tower might collapse, so they, it wasn't near. That, George Lepard, the novelist, um, wrote a good story, made that into a good story. He was no historian. He was selling his writing. He was very good at that. And so he made that story up about the signing of the liberty uh, of the declaration. And then the young boy runs up the tower and says, ring, ring. And the old gentleman sitting on a stool, half asleep, you know, comes alive. And it's the metaphor of the past and the future. How often do you come across things that are legendary stories that you find out just ain't so? Uh, there's a lot that's ain't, that ain't so out there. Um, and uh, uh, there's so many, so many, Let's, I'm trying to think, how often does that happen? I, I think you turn to any standard history from uh, the 18th century, 19th century, early 20th, mid-20th century, and there's, there's just, they're just riddled with uh, flaws, which is why I don't go there. I go to original documents as much as I can. Um, I'm not out there to explode myths, uh, legends, but... But I just want to know what actually happened. And, and to do that, it's a matter of piecing together information. It's a puzzle. Um, do you focus on one particular period of time, or is it from the founding of the city to, to now? I tend to focus on the 19th and 20th century more than uh, other things. Partly, again, it's the images are driving this. So if you look at the images in the city archives, they have some from the 1850s. They don't have lithographs and watercolors from before photography. Uh, they tend to have a tremendous amount of photography from, say, the 19-teens to the present day. Uh, so I'll... Uh, uh, I'll focus on that period, but I'll find sometimes an image made 20, 30, or 50, or 100 years after the building that was photographed. And so I'll tell the story. I'll let that be an avenue back to the deep past. Now, uh, we'll probably jump around a lot on this discussion, because your book just jumps from subject to subject. But you write about the Penrose Avenue Bridge, and you write about it very lovingly. And some people might not 
appreciate that as you drive past the refineries, but what is it you like about the Penrose Avenue Bridge or the Platte Bridge? Uh, I the thought, that, yeah, I thought that was the perfect entrance to the gritty city. You know, now that we have a mascot called Gritty, <laughs> it's like the word grit has been embedded or re-embedded in our civic imagination. Um, that drive from the airport was this ultimate, honest, chaotic entrance to the city where on the left were oil refineries spewing pollution, on the right what was this machine that's now gone. They, it's uh, been uh, this company that chewed up massive amounts of old cars, carcasses of cars, and made piles of scrap steel uh, that would be eventually carted off. Uh, I felt that we in automobiles on that bridge were threading the needle between the oil refineries and the future of our, the cars that we're sitting in. So I thought, this is such an uh, honest, unvarnished way to enter the city. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry it, it, it turned into a park-like, you know, there's trees and flowers, and it's like, what do they tell us? Is that a way to sort of get Philadelphia? And or, or there is a, an it that you can get about Philadelphia. Oh, definitely. And, and people, that's what people like about this place, that, that what is it? We all agree it has something. It's different. It, it's its own place. And, uh, um, you know, the, the, word, the word grit does apply. I, I don't know how they came to naming that mascot, but I think its success is partly the identification of gritty um, that's the story of Rocky, which I write about there, wondering if Rocky is, in fact, um, a bit dated. Um, is that the story of Philadelphia today, or was that the story of Philadelphia in the middle of the 1970s when industrial decline was driving jobs out of the city by the tens of thousands? Um, unemployment was high. There was a recession. Um, Rocky, the, the Rocky underdog narrative isn't necessarily Philadelphia today, or the Philadelphia underdog narrative is contained in such a way that it's not nearly an existential threat like it once felt. Are you a lifelong Philadelphian? Sure. <laughs> I, I went to, I was born on Broad Street, I've worked on Broad Street, I went to school on Broad Street. I, I, I was born at Einstein up in the northern division, it, there no longer is a southern. I went to Central High School, which is a block off Broad Street. I went to Temple University, and my first job at the library company was 13, 14 Locust, or, or half a block off Broad, and I work at Temple. So I've never been off of Broad Street, right? Uh, I um, grew up in different uh, neighborhoods, Mount Airy, Fairmount. Um, uh, my father is from here. My grandfather father was born at Fifth and Pine in 1900. I'm not an old Philadelphian and wouldn't want to be. And that's not old, you know, in Philadelphia. To be an old Philadelphian, you need to go back or have people in your family who go back hundreds of years. Uh, I'm not that. I, my ancestors came from Eastern Europe and settled here for what reason they never bothered to tell. They just settled here and did their jobs and and so I look at it as my job to figure out where we are and what it means. What newspaper did your family read you when you were growing up? Well, I, the Bulletin, the Inquirer, 
Oh, both. Um, um, I would rarely see the daily news in the house. Um, and I thought it was an exciting thing as a little kid when my father would give me the nickel and say, I'm going to drive past the newspaper guy at, at Broad and, and, uh, and Arch. Just hold that nickel out. He'll put a newspaper in your hand. And I thought, that, that was exciting. Um, and uh, before I could read, I was holding you know, the newspaper and uh, looking at the comics, some of which are the same today. Um, so yeah, the, the, the papers are essential uh, uh, then and now. And the fact that the Inquirer and Daily News are digitized and word searchable uh, through I use the Temple Library, but anyone can, can get an account at Philly, um, um, at philly.com. And the Philadelphia Tribune is also online. So if I'm looking up something, I can, and of course the Library of Congress has a number of different online resources. So we don't have to go back and read the actual physical papers, which would take days. I can come up with a word that I want to explore, and, and, and within a few minutes, I have something on it. So this book wouldn't be possible without the internet. Do you have a big library at home? I do, and sometimes, I'll sit there and I'll say, I want to take a look for a phrase or a book, and I'll say, I know it's online now, and I know it's on the shelf over there. Which is faster? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's faster, I hate to admit this, to look it up online, um, but, I, um, um, but I, 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 I'm surrounded by books, I love them, and I've written a bunch of them, so I'm not about to say we've we're past all that. We're not. Um, and uh, on my way here, I held a copy of my book again and opened it up and read it. And I thought, this is a good format. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Philadelphia's neighborhoods. Yes. And how many are there? Is that a matter of some? Oh, it's a big argument. Depends on how close you are to the border between one and another. Those mm -hmm. borders are always being challenged or changed. Um, new names are coming up. Um, Sometimes the names are invented by neighbors, sometimes by realtors. So, uh, you know, I didn't know about Bella Vista. That wasn't a neighborhood that existed when I was growing up uh, around the Italian market, Ninth Street Market. There was, uh, back in the early mid-90s, when I was at the library company, I did a now out-of-print book, um, two of them, called the Philadelphia Almanac and Citizen's Manual with um, help from the William Penn Foundation. It wouldn't have been possible without a grant from them. And this was a compilation of a lot of miscellaneous stuff. I had worked there at that point since 77, so I had been there, and I had files, and my head was full of facts, and I thought, okay, I need a place to just put them down. And that almanac, um, which was sold really inexpensively and given away to all the schools and libraries. Um, and so that's what I, you know, where I began to, to really uh, do that kind of detailed work. You write a lot about uh, different structures, buildings, bridges, and things like that. Yes. Um, do you have some favorites? How about bridges? Um, there is one bridge in a park, and I don't, can't put my finger on it right now, that you write about as 
being breathtakingly oh, beautiful. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Christopher Morley wrote about that, um, and that was the Walnut Lane Bridge. Uh, he called it poetry in, 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 in uh, concrete, and, uh, and he just waxed on about it, and I thought, okay, th th this is a good bridge, and it's currently being restored. So it's, it's something very much that, and, and the, the good thing about that bridge, it connected the Roxborough neighborhood with the Germantown neighborhood. Otherwise, you would have to go down into the Wissickon Valley and up, and in the pre-automobile years, the people just wouldn't do that. So the city was disconnected, in, uh, even though it was adjacent to one another. That's, those are two neighborhoods that were defined geographically. Sometimes, you know, neighborhoods are, it's a random street that's selected to be the border between two. Anyway, Morley loved that bridge, and I thought, if I can find a good picture of it, I could use his essay from about 100 years ago, the picture, and my additional research, which I was able to do by using the web, and I reassembled a slightly larger story than we had known before. Not, it's not a whole book. It's, it, it's, so some people have told me, and I'm not, they, they use my book as a way on their bedstand, as a way to uh, kind of, you know, say goodbye to the day, read a story, and then go to sleep. If that's what it is, that's fine by me. Um, I do figure that there'll be a new narrative to Philadelphia eventually. Um, but it's going to be not, it's going to be made up of these parts what do you and mean, others. What do you mean by a narrative? The, the story of Philadelphia can't, I mean, it, it you know, it's, it's a, it's, this is a, this is a, there are lots of stories that make the narrative. The narrative is something that is an overarching understanding. Um, and, and what is that? You know, what are the elements of that in Philadelphia? It's, uh, it's, it's certainly things like uh, freedom and opportunity and wealth and, and uh, struggle and, uh, and how all this came together uh, are the stories that form the narrative. Some people in decades past would have said the narrative is freedom and American independence. Well, that's more the national narrative based in Philadelphia. I'm much more interested in what the Philadelphian point of view is here. You mentioned the, uh, the tenement museum in New York. Did Philadelphia have an era where there were tenements like there were in New York? It, it, it did, but Philadelphia had a level and a rate of home ownership that if you had a job in a reasonable job, in a, in a factory, um, you know, nothing fancy, you could afford in the uh, 1890s, in the 19-teens, you could afford a row house. A bank, a savings and loan could, would give you a mortgage and you uh, uh, could be the first one in, after generations of people who didn't own their own homes in Philadelphia, you could be a homeowner. That made neighborhood strength and stability and for, last for quite a while. Uh, and in the 18, after World War, uh, rather after the Civil War, going up all the way through World War One and into the 1920s, there were about 300, 300 miles of row houses built. 
Philadelphia was totally transformed by this format of construction. Um, it was tedious, it, it, it block after block, and two-story, and sometimes three-story. And Philadelphia was often criticized for being boring and, and being a city of homes in, in the negative sense as well as the positive. Um, and there's one historian who called it the quintessential, the row home, the row house, quintessential product of the Industrial Revolution. It wouldn't have been possible without industrial jobs and the financial infrastructure to have tens of thousands of new homes. So no, we didn't have tenements like New York. Um, uh, we, we had a sprawling row house city, which is pretty much what we still have. Um, more people still to this day live in row houses in Philadelphia than any other American city. Uh, you say in here, um, South Philadelphia's civic temperature and Philadelphia's by a degree can be measured by checking in at the triangular section intersection at South Street, 23rd Street, and Gray's Ferry Avenue. If you go there, what do you see? Why is that the, the so intersection you focus on? There, there, there was the, the original city grid, which William Penn and his surveyor Thomas Holm laid out in the 1680s. And from that would be spokes of roads going in all directions. Um, uh, from that point at 23rd and South is a um, uh, Gray's Ferry Avenue goes to the southwest. Uh, you could go to the north and you would see Ridge or Germantown. Before these were avenues, they were roads or pikes. And they predated the sprawl of the grid. Uh, so that particular intersection has a nice little triangular, call it a square, but it's not, uh, um, a piazza, they would call it in, in Italy. And within a few, the, just the last few years, it's been reclaimed by the community as a s civic space. And understanding people have, well, the, the city government and citizens and philanthropy have understood shared civic space is a real cultural and civic asset. Let's have more of them. And so there's been interest and support. So that for formerly forgotten little intersection took on real community value and interest. And I got to say, just at the same time, there's a great deal of gentrification in that, in, in that part of the city uh, where there are folks coming into the community wanting that kind of, of, of change as well. Uh, and the word gentrification comes up in there too. I can, I can, uh, I can go on about gentrification. Sure. Okay. The word gentrification was invented only in the 1960s. It's burdened with all kinds of meaning and controversy, and some people think it's good. Many people think it's not. I, I wondered, for the sake of understanding the development of Society Hill, which might be called the first gentrified neighborhood in Philadelphia. Um, when the word started to get used, and uh, uh, Richard Ben Kramer, who was a prize-winning journalist at the Inquirer, um, used it for the first time on the front page in, I believe it was 1964, and then it started appearing again and again and again to a point where it, it was the, the term described for neighborhoods being turned over to new, young, uh, 
urban professionals, that sort of thing. And I thought, uh, you know, the way we talk about these things needs to be understood, not just what happened. I want to ask you about the, the PSFS building, because you write about that. And if you look at it, it just sort of looks like a big square black building. What, what's so special about that building? Well, I, I think if you went to an architecture class in, say, Berlin or London, and you were to ask, name a building in Philadelphia, you would expect people to say Independence Hall. But probably the buildings that they would name are the PSFS building and the Vanna Venturi house, Robert Venturi's house for his mother um, in Chestnut Hill. Why uh, the, the, the history of architecture uh, has embraced certain buildings and not others. And so the PSFS building was known, Philadelphia Savings Fund Society, no longer exists as a bank. Um, Still has the letters up on it. The letters are there and they're going to keep them. It's a National Historic Landmark. Uh, there were times when the, it, it, it was suggested the letters, the lights would be turned off. The public rebelled, um, even though it doesn't stand for anything that we that we can use at this point. It's not an advertisement. Many c corporations have their logos and their uh, their names on their buildings, but uh, PSFS is totally, ironically, meaningless at this point. The building was the first international style uh, uh, building in America, sky, uh, skyscraper. And it was planned right at the beginning of the Great Depression. The bank was led by enlightened people who said, let's do it anyway. Even though their assets were falling, they went ahead and built this, built this, which, so it's a, it, it, imagine it as the first skyscraper. I want to read what you say about it. It was, you have a picture of construction of the building in 1931. You say, no matter that New York's Empire State Building, which opened in 1931, was more than two and a half times taller than Philadelphia's PSFS building, the Quaker City's skyscraper was many times more modern. Yes. Well, the, 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 it had all kinds of things that, that uh, people would come to take for granted. It had air conditioning. It was the first uh, of that type. It was... It, it was constructed of different parts that would be, so there was the slab, which was for offices, and the service tower, which was for the elevators, the plumbing, and all of that. Uh, it had a separate, uh, very large and uh, um, steel structure uh, banking hall that was above the street level um, um, commercial properties. It was so well thought through, and it it was form follows function, a modern, uh, uh, a modernist concept. You could look at at it, and it made sense in how it was used, how it projected its intention. Um, it it was a building that Philadelphians came to love, but also people from around the world, and and so that's one of the reasons why uh, it remains to this day. Although it's a hotel, not a bank. Uh, but people are, are very fond of it. And, and over the years, people have uh, wondered what that PSFS can stand for. And, of course, we don't have one solution. But uh, I like to think Philadelphians savor fried Scrapple works. <laughs> have you written about Scrapple? 
Uh, oh, yeah, I love uh, Scrapple as a metaphor, not necessarily as a food. I, I've eaten it and I will eat it, but um, uh, back in the uh, 1980s, late 1980s, the library company and the historical society did an exhibition on food history. And um, I got uh, a friend who was a chef at the time, he's now head of Phil Abundance in Philadelphia, uh, Glenn Bergman, to do a demonstration about Scrapple. And I suggested that uh, we could tell the story of it. It's deep history, far deeper than the hoagie, far deeper than the steak sandwich. And it's real. It goes back to the 17th century. Um, it's the original Philadelphia food, you might call it. And it doesn't exist everywhere. Um, and it, it, it is made up of scraps. It's got that grit, right, that it's built into it. And... Um, uh, I, I thought, let's change the name, just jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, to Philadelphia Pate. <laughs> and, um, of course, that didn't catch on. I didn't intend for it to catch on. But, um, I, I, you know, it's not a culinary cul-de-sac. It's its own uh, historical food item, and, um, and it, it speaks to who we are to this day. So, yeah, I think... Uh, uh, Scrapple, Scrapple is a great metaphor for, for the city. Now, you, you mentioned the two uh, buildings that they study in architecture school. There's the PSF building and the Venturi House. Yeah, so what Bob, uh, Robert Venturi, who passed away recently, um, was given the opportunity by his mother, who was then a widow, to design a house. And he made it more of a manifesto than a house, although it is a house. And it's up in Chestnut Hill, and it is uh, contrary to uh, traditional design in that neighborhood, but pretty much every other neighborhood. It's been credited as the first postmodern uh, design in, in architecture. And so uh, people come from all over the world who study architecture and architectural history, and they, they will go and take a look at it. There are sometimes tours that's privately owned, but but uh, people will walk up to it, and, and, and uh, the owner tends to be pretty friendly, I happen to know. Um, and uh, it's just a wonderful, iconic expression of contrariness, um, of independence. Uh, uh, Venturi, his father was a, was a uh, fruit vendor, of, a distributor on, on South Street. He came from working-class roots, and... And, uh, you know, he was not about to embrace the traditional design values in Chestnut Hill. He was coming up with his own values. Do you have other favorite buildings? Uh, sure. Um, some of them don't exist anymore. One of my favorites has been real, really meaningful to me is Eastern State Penitentiary. Um, and that's, you know, one of the more massive and historic buildings, but uh, that was where uh, I got to be involved with its, at a critical moment when it was about to be turned over to developers in the uh, mid-1980s, 87, 88. Um, I got to be uh, part of a group that convinced then Mayor Wilson Good to hold off on turning it over to developers. And uh, so Eastern State uh, was put sort of pulled out of the, the, the stream of development 
studied for a bit and then now it's a historic site with a great deal of tourism and interpretation and we, we look right now at issues like mass incarceration and they have part, uh, in partly embraced the mission of understanding and interpreting mass incarceration um, as part of what they do. It's not just the Halloween tours which is how they make money. It's it, the, the, how they kind of sustain themselves, but, but the idea of a historic site tackling a difficult subject that is relevant to the present day, uh, that, the, and a building that's 11 acres occupying that footprint in the city, you know, I, I see that as a win for history and a win for the community. What's interesting there? I mean, why would you go to, to tour a, a prison that's been closed down for a long time. Sure. Well, uh, and, and a lot of people at the time, it was, we were talking about preserving it, not tearing it down, not turning it into a supermarket and condos, which is what, what the plan was. A lot of people said it's a, it's a monument to inhumanity. Why would you preserve it? But I always, and I'm part of a growing group of people who believe history and historic buildings shouldn't be celebrations, they should be telling the truth. Uh, it's okay to celebrate. It's wonderful to celebrate. But we also need buildings to help us remember the downside, the, the, the un unhappy moments. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact the Tenement Museum is, the, is an example of that. Uh, people a generation or two ago would say, why would you preserve a tenement. Why would you tell the story? Let's just forget that and move on and, you know, live our lives. Uh, well, it's really important to tell the story of how there was this flawed uh, incarceration system, that how the notion of, uh, of, of penitence, not just punishing prisoners, but, but reforming them as flawed as it turned out to be. They believed at Eastern State uh, that solitary confinement was a good thing. Um, solitary confinement with counseling, not like we would have it today, with plumbing and, 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 and water, which is more than prisons had at the time. Um, so it was a very expensive experiment that failed. Um, but it's worth and, and people who go and see it in, in its semi-ruined, stabilized, ruined state, they tend to be pretty impressed. They've never seen anything quite like it or quite like it on that scale of, of a, you know, cell blocks every which way. You mentioned buildings that are your favorites that aren't there anymore. You write about um, Music Fund Hall. Mm -hmm. Why is that... Uh it's not there anymore. Why does it make it into your book? Well, it, it, it is there. It's been turned into condos. Doesn't look anything like like the the original building. But it was one of the many venues for performances, and it it was uh, the site of uh, political conventions in the 1850s. But I like it, and I tell the story of how the Hutchinson family singers came there in uh, the 1840s, and they were singing anti-slavery songs. Now, you'd figure in a city like Philadelphia, that would be cool, singing songs against slavery. But they were singing them to interracial audiences, which was considered 
unheard of in Philadelphia at the time. And uh, there had been riots uh, about within the last decade. There had been riots every year, pretty much. And so there was this fear that this might lead to more uh, civic disorder, civil disorder. And so the mayor of, uh, of the city uh, told the Hutchinson family singers they could not perform there if they were going to do it in front of interracial audiences. And they said, OK, we're not going to perform here anymore. And uh, so we don't hear these stories because they make, they're embarrassing. Embarrassing that Philadelphia was not of a mind about slavery. I mean, this is the birthplace of freedom. But there were many ties Philadelphians had in the 1830s, 40s, 50s to the American South. And we weren't nearly as enlightened a place, not the entire city, as people would be led to believe. You also mentioned uh, that uh, Charles Dickens spoke there. Yes, right. Uh, and he, he came to Philadelphia um, in the 1840s. He went to Eastern State Penitentiary and had a very definite opinion about that. He looked at the facade of the Second Bank, which had gone bankrupt, and talked about that. He, he's a great commentator about um, he, he And we have his words, and we have Walt Whitman's words later in the century. It's like, I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to turn back to those texts and use them in uh, to help us deepen our understanding of what the city was like and what those buildings were and what they meant. There is a, another building you write about, the Merchants Exchange Building, and you, you talk about the architecture of it, but one of the things you say in there I have to ask about is um, Long before 1837, when Samuel Morse patented his telegraph, mm -hmm. Europeans and Americans had an optical telegraphs capable of quickly transmitting coded messages over great distances, and the Merchants Exchange Building was a hub of that. What is an optical telegraph? Basically, that if you wanted to connect Philadelphia and New York before there were wires uh, in ways that are faster than a horse might, you know, a guy on a horseback might 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 uh, take. Uh, and, of course, you have to cross several rivers along the way. Uh, imagine uh, having a series of towers where visually there could be code car, uh, uh, transmitted uh, from visually from one spot to another to another. Um, and this was tried and attempted successfully in Europe uh, to connect sites that were far away. And it was done in this area, but you know what happened? This was predated the uh, the telegraph. Well, as soon as you had wires and the telegraph, that kind of made the optical uh, connections obsolete. But we had it here, and that tower, uh, which is uh, what at um, Walnut around Second Street, uh, was far higher. Uh, well, it was. Uh, about the same height of a church tower, and so there were there was nothing visually blocking the way, and so yeah, they could make it and did make it part of a a connector to New York City and other places. How often do you come across uh, a, a person or a moment in history that you think, oh, I really wish I could have met that person. Really could have wish I could have seen that event take place. Uh, there's there's uh, you know uh, I I feel like I I have the privilege of time travel because I do research. And what I find is, as much as I fall in love with 
the idea of seeing one moment and witnessing that or being there when something was decided. Um, the one, this, this may, be, may, may make me sound promiscuous in a historical way. I, I, I like the one I'm working on now, whatever that may be, um, because I've just brought it to life. I've just animated it by doing my research. And by doing that, it's like, yeah, uh, um, I want to I see it actually as it occurred because sometimes historians get it wrong. And we speculate, as I said way back at the beginning of this, uh, uh, this interview, uh, sometimes it's okay to speculate, but um, being able to migrate from one historical moment to another um, and capture what actually was said, what actually happened, that's what I want to do, uh, you know, be able to do. So, so uh, I can't easily pick one over the others, um, but, mm. Are times in your research, you, you come across two different accounts of the same thing that conflict with each other? Yeah, and that's a good thing, uh, uh, because there should be, I mean, reality is interpreted uh, differently, but pe people could be in the same room and, and, and have different interpretations of it. So I look at, at that as a way to interpolate what actually took place. It requires critical reading of both accounts. Uh, if they're somewhat divergent, that's good. If they're wildly divergent, then we need more information. We can't base uh, uh, a narrative or a story on either one. So, yeah, it's a tough one. We, we will obviously not have enough time to touch on all the different interesting stories, but here's just, just jumping from one to another. You write, uh, in 1910, America had an ice addiction. It started at 6th and Market Street in the 1780s at the president's house, 18-foot-deep stone-lined octagonal pit, ice pit that supplied the elite with pristine river ice all year round. Great. Where did you find out about that? Well, actually, they did a little bit of archaeology uh, uh, when before they built the Liberty Bell Pavilion, and uh, they found remnants of that, and so I learned about that. I don't know, maybe it was 20 years ago or so, and uh, uh, it, it turned out that uh, the, the Washingtons had it when George Washington was, was president. Jefferson liked it. He, re I believe, replicated it in um, at um, in Virginia. And um, so the fact that it was this massive ice pit below grade that frozen Schuylkill or Delaware, Delaware River water could be brought in and it would last through the entire summer uh, and that this, everyone knew that this was the way you kept your food chilled, well, not necessarily at a safe, but, you know, safe low temperature, but safe enough that the ice boxes of America by the late 19th and early 20th century, that was, everyone had the, the blocks of ice being delivered on a, sometimes a daily basis or at least several times a week. And, uh, and then at the sesquicentennial exhibition in 1926 when finally there was an electric ice, uh, ice box that prevented you from having to buy a, a, a massive cube of ice and having a guy traipsing through your house with this or going in the back door but dripping and, you know, bringing in 
debris from his sh boots from the street. Um, and, and also, of course, there were all these rumors that would be about the Iceman and the wives of, you know, the neighborhood. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the final uh, delivery was an ice box itself. Uh, and there was a statue at the sesquicentennial exhibition of an Iceman bringing in the electric device that was going to be plugged in. That would be the last time you saw him. And uh, so, yeah, ice was this incredible addiction until um, the improvement, which we pretty much still live with as is today. Now, you write in your book quite a bit about the, the building of the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. Now, how, when did that start? Whose idea was it? Connecting the center of the city to the park. I mean, the park is great, but unless you could see it or feel it, you know, being at the very center where City Hall is. So they had this notion in uh, the, actually, uh, the early 1870s, while City Hall was still very much at the early stages of construction. But they said, let's figure out, do a way to the park, parkway. But it wasn't going to be a visual diagonal. That idea came up in the 1880s. It took quite a while and many different variations of this until the 1918 plan by um, uh, uh, Jacques Ribert. And uh, that just, there were all these celebrations of its, its 100th anniversary recently. So the idea of doing this was basically to build a quadrant of the city and then gut it because they had just finished building this section of the city. Buildings were being demolished by the 100th that had just been built 30 years before. Was it controversial? Was there a lot of oh, opposition yeah. to it? Oh, and you could imagine there were ways of making money if you knew who and you knew what and that sort of thing, or the contractors for the roads that were put through, or the future sites that were speculated on and all kinds of things. Yeah, it was very controversial. And eventually every cultural institution that was on Broad Street or anywhere else in the city was being coaxed to move out. So it, it was a, a, a risky and, and transformative uh, project. You write about the Museum Mile. It was an ambitious idea that reflected a two-dimensional vision considering that museums alone, no matter how well-stocked or how well-appointed, do not a great city make. And you quote uh, Vitold Rybzinski saying, no one spends two hours in a museum, then goes down the street to spend two hours in another museum. Right. right. So right. is it a success? Well, they've come to realize it takes more than uh, a museum and another museum and a third museum to make it a success. There are cafes, there are public spaces, there are playgrounds, there are um, um, any number of other, of, of other things to do because people, as much as they want to think of themselves as culturally good cultural consumers, there's only so much that's reasonable in a day. So the idea of a museum mile is a marketing, and it's been effective as a marketing concept, but in fact, uh, a civic boulevard has to be, you know, civic is not just a museum. Civic is many things. Now, are people still discussing what to do with it? I mean, are they changing it in any ways, or is well, it there what are, it was intended to be? Yeah, at this point, there are a few uh, open sites that haven't yet been decided upon. Um, um, 
uh, there was a plan that fell through a, a while back for a Calder Museum. Do we need another yet another museum, or do we need a you know a cafe or a public art project or whatever it may be? And th th there's still discussions. The Parkway, like any other civic space, is a living, breathing ongoing project. It's never complete. Um, and and that, that, that's, that makes everyone, literally everyone, a participant or potential participant in it. Um, and when people are participants, they're not looking at history as a, as a, a spectator sport. History really isn't. It's, it, if it's done right, it's, it's uh, talking about who we are and why we're here. For someone who has never seen the clothespin, is it worth going to see, and what's so special about it? Well, Klaus Oldenburg, the sculptor, came up with this idea of a 45-foot-tall clothespin, which is across from City Hall. And yeah, it's worth seeing. Um, it's from the mid-1970s. It was a radical, uh, edgy idea. But I think we've seen and gotten used to public art being many different things for many different people. And so it's not as revolutionary all these decades later as it was then. But, uh, but Oldenburg, he even wanted to push the envelope a little harder. He had the notion of a 45-foot-tall screw, which the metaphor for that just <laughs> didn't sit well with the city fathers. And, and so he toned it down by making a clothespin, which you say, why a clothespin? It's a symbol, some say, of domesticity, of a clothesline. Of course, who uses them anymore when you have clothes dryers? But um, that would be the entrance to the subway, which is the way home. Um, or it looks like an embrace, a couple holding one another. Or it looks like the spring looks like a 76, which is when it was installed. The uh, artist smartly says, I, d I don't need to speak for it. The art speaks for itself which gets everyone involved. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Kenneth Finkel. He writes for phillyhistory.org and is also the author of this book, Insight Philadelphia. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.